This podcast is sponsored by Cleanesis Group. Through innovation and engagement of people, businesses and governments, they aim to eradicate microplastic pollution from all angles. The goal is to spread awareness so that people can make informed choices and be part of the solution. For more information, please visit cleanesisgroup.com. I'm joined today by Stephen Harris, a self-taught Michelin chef, musician and author. With Hulse Fresh Food, which is unique to the area, Stephen's restaurant, The Sportsman, is a cornerstone of Kent's life. People who have read The Sportsman will appreciate his love of storytelling and sense of history. His description of the land around his sea salt to Kent pub is a particular highlight of his writing. Stephen, thank you for joining me today on the Naughty Bikes podcast. How are you today? Yeah, I'm very well. Lunch just um, lunch is still going on a little bit below me, but um, I'm upstairs at the Sportsman. Um, oh, fantastic! Uh, overlooking the Salt Marsh, and it's wet and windy. Um, Sounds yeah. magical. I need. Yeah. That. Well. So, yeah. so I want to ask, what's as you know, my podcast is called the Naughty Bikes. What's your naughty pleasure? Oh, naughty pleasure. I'm terrible. I can be really good with food, good in the sense of not eating uh, too much, you know, because I'm prone. I've always I've always struggled with my weight all my life, really. Um, And I but by the end of the day, I get this kind of need for something. And the trouble is, I live above a restaurant and, you know, the so I I really do nearly always have a snack at late at night that's quite sweet but I'm I'm getting better at it um but you know that'll be something like maybe a scoop of ice cream Um, you know I can do that though with some (laughs) ground up at the moment it's a scoop of vanilla ice cream or or milk ice cream with some ground up hazelnuts honeycomb and kind of um feuillete crumbs which we serve with oh my god things so yeah that's the problem you know could you resist that that's amazing because what i do is like if i I'm, i love lentils any form of lentils yeah and, yeah, um, yeah. and i sometimes when we have lentil curry i make mm. a lentil toasty and i oh. love it with, 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 with like grated cheese because i love cheddar cheese right. uh buttered toast and hot lentil curry and that's my snack sometimes when I'm working late oh, I oh, get that's peckish. quite a good one yeah I love I love lentils somebody I know it's a thing now that's been around for a long time but um one of the girls who works downstairs uh does a kind of a lentil bolognese for her children oh, and well, you know yeah, I think it's some of the Ottolenghi or something like that. But okay. so, um, uh, yeah, I thought that as soon as I heard it, I thought, oh. Oh, yeah, it's a it nice way of doing a nice, rich, sticky kind of uh, uh, winter thing, but that uh, doesn't involve meat, which is, you know, win win, isn't it? I suppose. I'm going to try that. I'll have a look because I've got one of his books, but I will have a look because I like that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, you create seasonal dishes using local ingredients from Kent. Yeah. What's your favourite season and how do you incorporate this into your menus? Well, I thought about um, what my favourite season was a bit lately, 
you know, having a bit more time with lockdown, you know, the last two years, you know, when we've been kind of out of action. And I always used to say, I would always, I always used to say that I loved spring, Mm. but spring is actually hell in England because you've got the lovely weather, you crave the kind of, um, you know, you crave the fruit and vegetables that are coming in summer but they don't come they take ages and ages and actually most of the spring you spend eating all the leftover root vegetables from winter you know I I my I'm quite strict uh with seasons you know if you were to put put a menu in front of me of my restaurant I could probably get to within a couple of weeks of when it is so for example um anyway that comes to my answer which is that actually i have to own up it's summer because (laughs) everything is in season it's in great condition um and so for example in the summer i can tell you know like we'll have something like a green gauge souffle so we do fruit souffles um which are based uh you know they're they're based on whatever the seasonal fruit is so you know it tends to be rhubarb in february march um and then we'll kind of follow the seasons through with as many different um and anyway green gauge souffle which comes into season last week of july and is in season until about the last week of august then plum takes over then we had a brief period with um apples which we'll go back to because you can store apples but at the moment we're doing quince souffle um, cream cheese ice cream so um yeah so we that's always a very good guide but also you know just things like at the moment squashes aren't quite ready you know Mm. we're curing ours in our beer cellar at the moment Mm. Uh, so grown them we picked lots of them and we've got two different types we've got um butternut squash and we've got crown prince pumpkins and they you know they'll come on in the next week or so so you know they're very much an october mm. of late october thing um yeah and so we're quite strict you know the season yeah. aren't as simple as four you know mm. there are patterns within the season fruits for example through summer and vegetables you know sweet corn is an august thing you know yeah. august september um Whereas asparagus obviously is May, you know, April, end of April, May. Um, peas are very much kind of like May, June, July, you know, high summer. So, um, you know, I, I, that's how I work, you know, very kind of like week to week. You know, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, because we've got a garden, you know, you um, mm. because we grow our own stuff. I mean, we do get stuff from elsewhere, mm-hmm. but in the summer this year, we were 80 to 100% of our own vegetables. Wow. So we're forced to be seasonal. And because, um, you know, we have to follow them because that's what's available. So it's a really nice way of cooking. I love that way of cooking. I don't think I want to do this. Mm-hmm. What I do is my gardener says, we've got this. Yeah. We've turned that into a menu. And, I, you know, that's That's, that's better. Like, because that's a bit of my next question, actually, because what you've just said, there has been a rise of the the curious consumer or the the curious people. So they're looking for transparency. They're looking for provenance. 
Yeah. And a, a growing number of them now are supporting sustainable farming, local producers. And mm-hmm. They don't mind paying more money knowing that they're going to get value, you know, something yeah. that has a shorter yeah. food chain. Um, and so therefore they've been making more questions and the, they're questioning the origins of the ingredients. And you just answered my question, how do you showcase this in your meals? Because you're forced to... Um, yes, like, I mean, it's interesting. Yes, it's very interesting because some people, people operate on different levels. What what I've been doing now for 20 years is allowing, well, 23 years I've been at sports mm-hmm. and we've always cooked ultra seasonally. And uh, what we do is uh, the we're in the southeast. So everything comes into season first here yeah. because it's the warmest place, the lightest place in the country. Um, it's, you know, everything seems to come into season. Whereas say I was up North, it's interesting when I say I'm following someone on Instagram and I see they're using elderflowers and it's July, my elderflowers are long gone, you know, and I get three weeks with elderflowers. And during that time we have, um, an elderflower posset with a, um, elderflower fritter. Um, now, you know, we serve that as a put next to it. So a little posset, very flavoured with elderflower. It's all picked from the trees around here. But that will only last three weeks. Um, and that's what I mean about, you know, but we we tend to get things in season early, but they go out of season earlier. We mm. get the same amount of time that they're in season, you know, and that's how you can tell if, if, if you know, if, as you're saying, people are interested in provenance you literally just look around you because you can Mm. see what's in season here you know you can see what's in the bushes and the hedgerows if that's what you want you know like uh we just finished local blackberries which we served with a mushroom pate um and you know they were they were gorgeous this year they lasted for um nearly two months um Mm. but they're august september sometimes Okay. Um, you know you might creep into september um so yeah um if you're looking for uh seasonal you know i i i can be a bit cynical that there are a lot of people who use the idea of local and seasonal food still as a marketing tool and i'm not so sure that they're wedded to the idea to that extent to the extent that i am um because for me, it's like breathing. It's just so yeah. cool that you use what's around you that's in season and that's it, you know. Yeah. Um, be- because that's what I do, you know, and always have done. No, definitely. I think I think when you just said that, it's like um, I had a, a podcast with Tim Maddens last week. Mm. And it's what you were saying as well. It's become, you know, like that, you've, your your produce is your garden. You look out and you're like, okay, this is it. It's your surroundings. Yes. Um, but it's become a buzzword as well. And it's like, so when you say sustainability, it mm. becomes such a hot topic. But Yeah, it has, hasn't it? Yeah. Sustainability is a real thing. And, um, you know, yeah. great. Good, yeah. good on the face of it. But I do think you yes. have to drill down with these things yeah. and see, check that there aren't, as they always are in in life, some mm-hmm. charlatans using them for their advantage, yeah. a normally marketing way. Definitely, so, 
you get a lot of that you know you get it with for example restaurants which say oh yeah we grow all our own stuff and you look at you know and they've got an acre and it's mm-hmm. like hang on you can't grow I mean we yeah. do I do 100 covers a day 50 at lunch 50 in the evening um so you know uh, that's a lot you know mm-hmm. so we can't grow everything but this yeah. year we got to about 80 percent during the summer yeah. months but you know there are there are a lot of um practical things which make it very difficult to to make everything you need for a restaurant so be careful you know yeah i i always treat it with a bit of caution sustainability i mean i always uh, my i'll tell you what in 2001 when i started really uh around the millennium the turn of the millennium when i started um doing this i was so wedded to the idea um of cooking seasonally and locally and everything that I started coming up with a tasting menu that was literally just the food from a few miles around me. Wow. And the reason I did that for a very strong reason, which I'll tell you later if you want, but sustainability wasn't necessarily number one on my agenda. I wasn't doing it because it was sustainable. It happened to be sustainable because yeah. I was, I wasn't using any kind of, uh, anything that have been tried now i know food miles a lot of people say food miles don't matter you can buy lamb from new zealand that's got less carbon footprint than some lamb from a farm down the road it depends I, i'm not sure i believe that but um sustainability wasn't the reason i started doing what i'm doing it was a romantic idea yeah. of the cuisine de terroir from france in other yeah. words cooking that reflects the land yeah. around. Now I happen, you can't just do cuisine to terroir in a city because the land around you doesn't provide you with. Yeah. You, you can have another idea, which is just as good, you know, but you have to, um, you know, if you're going to cook using your landscape, you really have to be creative um, and because you're putting a big limitation on yourself. Yeah. And a lot of people don't want that. You know, I remember when we first started, people said, you just got cabbage on you know it's like yeah that's what's growing mm. yeah. there's cabbage there's maybe carrots there's sweet you know that's mm. seasonal cooking we're not going to import some fine beans from kenya just because you know we're a restaurant and yeah. that that was a complete change of attitude um because people back then probably thought, well, you know, you've getting flown in from kenya what's the problem or you know so that's from mexico does it matter um, that was the attitude back then, you know, the idea that you only use the vegetables that were growing at the moment down the road at your at the farm we used for vegetables was was radical. And we had people saying, well, if it's still just cabbage and broccoli, I'm not coming. You know, mm-hmm. so, oh, you know sorry, but that's what we're what we're doing. So it's all moved on a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. But my original motive was to, as I say, it was the romantic idea of food just from around where I am, which is a very yeah. food, is a very food place. I'll explain yeah. that if you want later. But sustainability only starts really becoming a bit of a buzzword around about 2009 or 10 in food, yeah. seriously. And then you get these kind of restaurants, you know. I don't know. I saw something the other day. They project the menu on the wall so they don't use paper. And I'm like, but you 
but you use a projector that uses bulbs and electricity and all yeah. that. Why don't you just use a chalkboard? But it's curious because that doesn't thing, use any energy apart from the person who writes it. Exactly, but it was really curious because I think during lockdown and during COVID, a lot of augmented reality kind of emerged from the restaurants. So having you know what you just a projector on the screen or having menus that were mm. shown on your table, but you can just flick through yes. it as opposed. It's become yeah. a a fashionable. It's trying to impress, isn't it? Yeah. It's trying to be like, oh, that's new. You know, in other words, they're just trying to make a mark. And I get it. You know, everybody wants to make a mark. But um, I don't see it as it ain't going to save the world. You know, when you've got, you know, kind of a billion people in India and a billion people in Brazil and a billion people in China and a half a billion in Nigeria and everything, all needing food and using and giving off carbon and us you know everyone it's uh you know i don't think these things are really going to solve any kind of a problem these things i think unfortunately have to be done on a global scale by um by uh cooperation between countries Mm. on a massive scale Uh, that's how climate problems uh, are gonna if they're gonna get solved that's how they're gonna get solved i'm afraid i love you know i don't criticize anyone for wanting to try and, and make things better yeah. but mine began not with that feeling mine began with the feeling of what a lovely idea of all the food just coming from what's around you yeah. that that was the point i was making but well, i think that's right. <laughs> I think yeah. it's right because um when i lived in march um so like in cambridgeshire so yeah. I've worked in potatoes because it's abundance in root vegetables and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I used to drive past the farms, they'd be like, oh, local produce. It'd be like carrots or sweet or uh, beetroot. Mm. And I'm not really a fan of beetroot because it was in season. I thought, I've got to try it. So I thought, how can I incorporate this in my food? And I made a mung, like a mung curry, like a mung lentil sort of curry. Yeah. And I roasted the, um, what's it called? The beetroot. And then I shredded it with coconut and then I um, oh. sprinkled it on top. So I was like, okay, that I can handle because it's not you would have a normally, you great coconut. Yeah. And I thought, why not? So I thought, let me uh, try something different. Try in trying my love for beetroot. And I like it in small doses because it's such a strong mm. vegetable that it was nice that it it, it complemented No, it's thing. a weird vegetable. There's no way around it. It's a it's a marmite vegetable in the sense that people love it or hate it. Yeah, weird because it's sweet and earthy. And earthy right. isn't. I mean, all right, lentils are earthy, aren't they? And I guess mung beans are earthy. Yeah, you know, there's an earthy taste there, but earthy with sweet within it's the same unusual. vegetable. It's, it is you're right. It's marmite. They make sugar out of them. I mean, that was how they. You know, white beetroot was originally sugar beet. So that's how they'd make sugar. So they'd extract it from the from the beetroot, reduce yeah. the juice right down till it's crystallized, and then break it up into sugar. So that's you know, it's that sweet that they make sugar out of it. But yeah, I get it. It's it's a weird vegetable. Yeah. And I didn't like it. I'd eat it, but I would eat it like maybe like you. Yeah. I'd have a bit and I I wouldn't say like when they come up at the beginning of a meal and say, Is there any dislikes or allergy? Mm-hmm. 
I wouldn't say, oh, I don't like beef. <laughs> I'll try it. But I must admit, inside me, a little bit of me died when it arrived on a plate. And <laughs> I think about that when I when I put it on the menu. Um, because it is controversial. It, yeah. It's weird. I went to a restaurant in Paris with a chef called Alan Passard, who is the greatest vegetable cook in the world. He has three farms, which he literally grows everything, has it brought into his Paris restaurant and does a menu of just uh, the stuff from his farm. He's a bit of a hero. And he's got this three Michelin star restaurant, which is quite controversial in Paris. He was known for giving up cooking meat when he was one of the best meat cooks in France. Oh, wow. And you have to be good if you're good at yeah. meat in France. He was, uh, anyway. Um, and I went there and his, his what he does with beetroot would convert anyone. Um, he is amazing. He manages to keep, uh, he's talking on a like such a high level about vegetables, about maintaining like, uh, most of his vegetables never see a fridge because they're picked and then they, you know, he uses in a day or two. And, um, you know, so, but his food, the, the, the food tastes earthy. It tastes of the garden. And I can't describe it any better than that. But if you go, um, he's it's just fantastic. And he talks about the sap. So I now, when I'm cooking vegetables that I've just picked, give you a good example. Get a uh, if I go out into my garden and I get a French bean, a fine bean, say about, mm. then uh, I'm gonna serve it with say be maybe lamb or chicken or whatever. So I. Uh, quite often do this to illustrate to people snap one in half and squeeze the bit where you've snapped it and all this juice comes out that's the sap in the vegetable now try doing that with one that was imported from kenya and it'd be dry not because yeah. there's anything wrong with kenyan beans but the fact that it was picked a month ago and stored and it yeah so his food has this sappy taste of fresh vegetables and I didn't realize how much I love that taste until I went to his restaurant and he's really all that is kind of really gave me an extra jet boost in what I do you know mm. it, like, it really made me think this is a great path to go on because I get to cook with vegetables that were picked that morning and if you have beetroot that's just been picked um there's something kind of it, there's something extra which mm -hmm. means that the sweet earthiness work is more tolerable but when it's stored <coughs> it changes slightly and that's kind of what i don't like is old slightly old beetroot it reminds me of like stored potatoes when they go there's a smell that yeah. comes with it afterwards it reminds me of that but yeah it's curious you say that because i've never thought about it like that in yeah. terms of the, the sap because yeah you know, here as well, like eating the seasons is a massive thing. It's what yes. your dishes are prepared because of what's growing. And yes, and that's yes. what I and that's what I love about it because I don't like the fact that you know when avocados are not in season and for some reason yeah. I have no idea why they import it because we live on like avocados grow forty minutes down the road. Yeah. So when they're imported, the price is phenomenal. It's like so expensive. Yeah, and it lacks flavor. It lacks sweetness. You know the creaminess and the sweetness because it just yeah. the skin breaks away and the avocado snaps. It's it's really weird. I I don't understand it and I don't know why they do it. 
but I wish they encouraged more of that with certain types of produce, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I found this with California in general, for example. Mm. They often grow four, they often have like four harvests a year because of the climate. Um, and I don't, I think there is a time, I don't know about this. I know, I know this about grapes for wine, that the gap between the flowering in, say, I can't think, uh, say the flowerings in June and the picking of the grape has to be at least 100 days for certain phenolic compounds to develop in the grape. So if you have a really hot summer and that 100 days isn't kept, I mean, ideally 120 days, and then there will be complexity in that grape as well as sweetness uh, and all the other things you need for making good wine. If you if that 100 days isn't met, those phenolic compounds don't develop. And so you get wine when it's grown for a short amount of time is less complex. So you pick the grapes, they'll be nice and sweet, but you come to drink and it's like alcoholic Ribena. There's no grunt. There's no earth. There's no phenolic content yeah. um, because it didn't have long enough growing because these things have a certain time they need. I'm wondering whether that happens with um, vegetables that are grown yeah. too quick. Um, Definitely. There's something missed. It does have a big difference. I mean, you know, tomatoes, grow tomatoes in a, in a polytunnel versus outdoors, and they'll have a thicker, mm. thicker coating. Yeah, skin. Definitely. So there's all these questions. So, you know, I think that uh, that's one of the things that, when you grow, you begin to appreciate things like that, you know, about the natural way of things. There are some things you can't fake. I mean, with tomatoes, they do it brilliantly because they now change the varieties. They cross them till you get super sweet tomatoes, and people are happy with that. But I want sweet with mixed with minerality in my tomato. Yeah. So, you know, when I bite them, I like that burst of sweetness, but I want the, there to be a some kind of earthy minerally tang underneath that you know yeah because uh, you get that a lot with wine ripened like naturally wine ripened yes, yes yeah. the smell already attracts you and then you try yeah. it it's a sweetness followed by a subtle acidity but it's yes. earthy and that's yes. the experience that i enjoy yeah. with my tomatoes and if it's not there then um then you know you end mm. up compounding it when you have a meal of vegetable, that are particularly vegetables that aren't that great, mm -hmm. you know, and that's uh, you don't end up with that satisfied feeling that you do. You see, I've got this vision of a perfect meal, and it's very simple. It's like a steamed piece of sea bass with some peas and broad beans, and uh, that have just been picked in a very light kind of sauce. Um, you know, that's so perfect that you get the fish and, you know, the fish is cooked because it's steamed. You can really taste the pure flavour of the fish, mm. super fresh, and you bite into it and you have it with the vegetable and that little bit of sauce and you get you get mouthfuls of food that you can't, you can't get it anywhere else unless you've got a garden. You see, I know a lot of people who eat here have their own garden, so they actually have great produce. So I've got to top that. So you know, I've got a technique is what I can top that with, 
you know so somebody who can go out into their garden and pick some runner beans you know we do that my um my soon-to-be wife um grows lots of um vegetables and we, and we had them in the summer um so you get a bit sport like that but mm. um i just a perfect meal for me would have all that sap and the earthiness of the garden all there um and then i might you know and then not overcooking them so for example you know quite often with vegetables i have to say to the guy cooking the vegetables remember you're just warming them up you're not cooking them because you could eat these raw yeah you know you're literally just using warmth to tease a flavor out of something and yeah. you don't have to otherwise you know most people at home will overcook things people are quite scared of food it's true because what I do is really because I love when peas come in season and here they're super short. Yeah. Um, so I pod, like I'm just used to like potting them and stuff. Mm. But I love eating fresh peas. Yeah. Because too. they're so sweet and they're yeah. delicious. But because yeah. I was eating them, my little one, it would have been about 16 months or whatever it was. He's yeah. now 21, but months. Okay. But um, was, was copying me. 21. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. it, it's called magic. I was <laughs> so going to say, like, you must eat a lot of vegetables, yeah. <laughs> um, but he was imitating me, copying me, and eating ah. the peas as well. And I was like, yeah. that's brilliant, because he loves yeah. eating everything. And it was just a good uh, thing for me to share with him. But mm. curiously, you mentioned a perfect meal. And um, the other month, we went to Bilbao to see family. And we went to, because a lot of Spanish restaurants cook with everything from their province. Yes. So very strong about that. And it sounds really strange, but I had a lettuce pie. Right. So it's really bizarre. So it was um, steamed cod and uh, from so steamed cod. It was really super, super thin and it was covered in two like lettuce leaves. Right. And it was coated, I think it would have been coated in cornstarch. Because right. it was like a, a thin layer of pastry, which wasn't pastry, it was okay. cornstarch. So I was like, okay. Yes. And it was cooked in a cider yeah. wine sauce. Yeah, it's yeah they look thin. Wow. But it was, I was like, I'm curious because I've never had this before. I would never order it, but it was magnificent. It melted mm. because it was super thin and the sauce was so light mm. and simple. Everything complemented each other because of the subtle flavors that we use and yeah. also because the apple was from the land from their garden yeah they, because it's they love it. in, and in then Bilbao. the lettuce was local and then there's mm. cod it was remarkable and it was a perfect meal because it was subtle without any of the flavors overpowering each other. it was unusual like i'm still thinking about it now thinking oh my god how did they oh, well, there it? you it was, go that's a great bit of cooking so, so, um, yeah so so then let me bring you back so yeah. we're talking about food and provenance and yes the land yes what do you think is the definition of british food um well that's an interesting one in itself um because of course britain's quite regional you know i mean in france for i would say this to people in france you have it's such a big country um from north to south mm. that you have for example, Normandy cooking, which is apples, it's butter-based, um, it's farmyard animals like, you know, cows and lambs and fish from the north coast, which is turbot, sole, those kind of things. Then 
you have down in the south, you have Provençal cooking, where the climate's a Mediterranean climate. It's a different climate. So mm -hmm. France has these huge different climates and therefore completely different, um, you know, uh, like if you're an artist, completely different colours to paint with. Mm -hmm. So in the south of France, it's goats, lamb, um, it's olive oil, uh, it's you know fruit citrus fruits all that kind of stuff so if you think of it like that france is very regional so you wouldn't yeah. you can't say what's french cooking you have to say which part of france now in england because we britain sorry we have a less developed sense of food you know because we we haven't had a food culture for as long as france has uh if you ask what is british cooking you know it's it's also regional but mm. not necessarily we don't have an area that's so hot that, uh, you know, it's got a different climate. You know, we have a maritime climate that's uh, based on, you know, so it's quite damp. It's it's very moderate temperatures usually. And that's the climate of England. And the climate dictates what you can grow and what you grow dictates what you can eat until the days when you can import it. So, now British, British food is is related to where you know you know is related you know to empire or mm -hmm. it, what it was you know I mean you got the same thing in Spain haven't you I suppose the influence of South America but yeah um, so there's that but there's all you know it, it's it's you know there are a few things so oats come from the north wheat is grown in the south yeah. you know so that starts giving you. Uh, different you know so up north you'll get oat cakes and soda breads and all that kind of stuff yeah I love it um, and in fact the north also has fantastic seafood it you know think so of awesome. Scottish think of you know scallops mussels all those things from Scotland the, the cold waters the cold water locks and growing shellfish so it's very regional in that sense also the fish is different so mm -hmm. up north they'll go out and get cod and haddock and all those kind of fish down here we've got more things like turbot soles um mm. or maybe less you know they've got better langoustine you know so in other yeah. words britain's regional in a different way to um france because it's not regional based on different climates it's regional based really on you know history and and a bit to do with the climate the the weather more than the climate um so yeah what british food for me but it is you know if you say british food what does it emotionally bring up yeah. it's, ro it's roast dinners and steamed puddings and you know that kind of thing um yeah. you know it's it's traditionally what in britain's strength was the quality of its ingredients mm. and i think part of that has to do with the fact that things take a little bit of time to grow but they do grow um it's very it should be very maritime mm -hmm. but weirdly it isn't it is you know there's not as much tradition of the sea in english cooking and british yeah. cooking there should be you know the scots don't eat their produce well, they... it, but, but it's curious because we're an island and we have an amazing array of fish and and shellfish yes, and yes. And it's yeah. a shame that a lot of people don't embrace that a bit more than they yeah, should. Yeah, well, it's only recently become embraced, oh, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, if you would talk to anyone in the industry, if you go to a, 
you know, the harbour side anywhere around England uh, or or Scotland, it's more, even more in Scotland, you'll see agents, mainly from Spain, Germany and France, who come over and buy English seafood. And they really do. I mean, I've been on a, I was at a harbour side in Scotland when I was on holiday because the boats were coming in. I saw it. So I got some langoustine tails, which I bought directly off the fishermen. And they were like, oh, no one around here eats this. You oh, know. I love it. I, I love know. it. So juicy. Yeah. And they're like, they don't eat langoustine. And they're on the harbour side, they were Spanish, particularly Spanish. The Spanish love, you know, they love seafood so much. Yeah. You go somewhere like Bilbao and, you know, there's that lovely fish market, um, yeah. or there was when I was there. And um, they buy up, they'll buy everything up and they'll pay the high price. Because, because they eats it. Yeah, because everyone eats it and they realise the value of it. So the Spanish are like the Japanese of Europe, you know, in terms of, (laughs) you know, they're they're mad for their seafood, you know. It's it's true. And I think because living in Granada, because of the hot climate, and we do have the coast, we have the coast and the mountains, a lot of people have seafood because it's quick to cook. And in the summer, they fry it a lot because it's it's because of the heat. We have forced degree heat. And so you can't do that. But when you go to the north, they're always served with a light sauce and it's just spectacular like so the contrast in food is very different like you said an artist with different colors it's the same thing yeah but they do um they do understand seafood really well in other in some other countries Mm -hmm. i think we're still learning in britain uh about that because if you serve people a perfectly cooked piece of cod they'll often say here they'll be like oh it's a bit under you know no it is I like the slight opaqueness you get. Exactly. In well, it has to be. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what I spend, you know, with fish cooking. That's yeah. what you spend all your time doing is that perfect moment. Cod, you have to do that. It's not. So, it's more forgiving on other fish, but yeah, but you, you can't overcook because if not, it gets very chewy. And it's yeah, just, exactly. And it there is a moment when you cut into your cod. And it should have that exactly what you say, that kind of opaque thing, and the flakes just. Mm-hmm come apart yes. see, if they don't come about apart i accept it's undercooked yeah um in which case unless the chef wanted that for some reason yeah definitely. Um, but you know we eat our you know medium rare and rare why mm. wouldn't you eat seafood meat i mean i like scallops medium rare and people go what yeah, medium no. rare scallops it's like well i like them charred on the outside and a little yeah. bit raw in the middle I that's love it. That, that's actually yeah. how I have it in the North Coast. It's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, you know, uh, so I don't see why, you know, I, I hate those kind of TV programs like MasterChef, where they're like somebody serves a scallop that's undercooked, and they're like, "You can't serve some on that; it will kill." You know, it's like, yeah. have you heard of sushi? You know, people <laughs> eat raw fish, you idiot. You know, and it drives me mad because it it encourages people who don't know what they're talking about to instead of saying oh yeah that's great you know a slightly medium rare you know in, with certain fish i'm not saying with everything but just try yeah. it be open-minded yeah. you know and that's what i like about the spanish they are open-minded about um you know in europe generally yeah. Yeah. um i think so and they might be stuck in their ways that's one thing we're not we're good in england we're good, we're good. At trying you're good at trying. Exactly. You know, yeah. so, uh, you know, at the moment, everyone loves 
Mexican, Korean. Um, we've always loved Indian and Chinese food. That's lovely to run out question. Yeah. It's a bit of a paragraph, but when you define British food, yeah, we've had lots of influences from other yeah. other people and cultures. So, you know, the Celts, yeah. Romans, Vikings, and yeah. then the immigration in the 1800s brought the French, Russian, um, yeah. Italians. Yeah. Yeah. And then after World War II, we had settlers from, you know, China, Middle East, yeah. parts of Africa, Mediterranean. And all, yeah. over time, they've brought their own tradition, food traditions. Yes. And then that's what's kind of made up a bit of the British nation sort of thing. Yes. You know, like you just said, you know, people like curries and noodles and yes. you know, bagels, for example. Mm-hmm. But over the course of time, traders are now bringing in ingredients from overseas. And for centuries, spices, citrus fruits, etc. But traditionally, when I was doing some research back in university, I remember the UK was a a beer drinking and butter eating nation, mm-hmm. and dairy, pork, mm-hmm. breads because you're saying oats and uh, yeah, wheat. Wheat, wheat, and wheat. and again regional, mm-hmm. and then. You get the money-saving way as well, like using leftovers such as shepherd's pies, which is famous for yes, yes. pickled onions in love. How would you describe British in that aspect? Because you said we're so open to trying new things, which is amazing because it's true in Spain. Mm-hmm. Where I live, there's only one curry restaurant. Yes, and, and Italy. Go yeah. to Italy. You don't, you're gagging for a curry after you come back from Italy, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, you really are. It's like, oh, my God, I can't wait. Chinese or a, yeah. or a curry. Yeah. yeah, that's true. And I think that's been a, an interesting way of defining Britishness in the sense of the yeah. openness to try different food from different cultures. You know, some people can say, oh, it's a bad thing, what's a good thing, but what history I think the problem I think the problem at the root is is the um attachment of it to uh in empire and imperialism yeah. which was you know which is now we're beginning you know as time as we move away from that period and we can look back you could see the bad side of imperialism a lot more we but thought also, we were a benevolent country you know we thought yeah. we were benevolent in africa or india but it's now looking like no it wasn't it was really exploitative and it's a yeah. slight embarrassment in the modern world yeah. um, and i think that that is what creates a little bit of a problem with mm. um with the fact but 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 the the, the fact remains it's, that we it's made got, us yeah. we, it's changed our way of eating definitely and i think it's made us more open yeah. Because when we go to different countries, we will try different types of food as yeah. opposed to, you know, being quite closed, you know. Mm. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, like eating pasta all every meal, yeah, you know, which I found in Italy. You know, once you've got back from some places, you you literally, you know, it's the lo- it's the Italian local food and that that's it. There is yeah. no kind of variation, which is great in one way because yeah. they preserved and kept their tradition. Whereas um, maybe we turned our back on our tradition. I don't know. So there are people fighting to bring that back. I think. And I yeah. think, yeah, and I think I've seen that because some of your recipes, I love the influence of the Frenchness as well. Like, you know, the yeah. techniques. Yeah. And I think it's such a magical way of pairing something traditional yeah. and unique to the UK sort of terrain yeah. 
and offering mm. that to people, you know. And I think I have to say that the UK is, is great about when we think of cultural diversity, mm. I think it's good in a way that it's defined our traditional style of dishes now because it's so it's a mix it's like um, it's a mix of different cuisines that have become so traditional to the UK which makes it interesting yeah. for the senses right? yeah it does I mean if you look at um, English chefs have no problem at the moment there's a real big like you know there are trends and moves mm. in, in it and now I find young chefs think nothing of using Japanese or Chinese or Mexican, all these different influences, and they'll drop them in quite easily and naturally. Whereas even a great cooking country like uh, France, that's only just started happening in the last five to 10 years. Whereas in England, we've been doing it 20 or 30 years or whatever. In other words, except, you know, curry is, you know, every, everyone I know loves curry and probably has it once a week. Yeah. Chinese meal um, and now more you know Korean as I said Mexican and now people are getting into Vietnamese and Cambodian and all that kind of stuff yeah. and you can get that in Paris I mean my first Vietnamese meal was in Paris in the 80s because of the colonial uh, context of France and Vietnam yeah. um, but it was within a Vietnamese quarter so yeah. it was a bit of a kind of ghetto you know it was kind of food you know everyone there lived came from vietnam or a lot of the that area yeah um whereas i'm talking about when it's more developed and people in england just drop it into meals quite easily you know yeah. um you know somebody i know made a shepherd's pie but with chili con carne base you know which i thought was hilarious you know <laughs> oh um yeah and um or making like you know why not make a chili with corn mashed corn on top you know you could just yeah. mix it all up and there's I, that is a good thing. I mean, mm. you know, I'd like to think, you know, I'd like to think that England was a welcoming, you know, I'd, that was what it used to be, mm. you know, a kind of a quite a welcoming culture and not um, too precious about its own thing. And I, I always liked that about England. Um, Me too. Of course, there's a bit of a backlash now with the rise of the new right wing. You know, you've got mm. a backlash in particularly Anglo-Saxon countries like America and England and Britain and Australia and places like that, which are reacting slightly because they fear their culture's under threat. Well, I'm not like that. I just mm -hmm. think, bring it on, you know, let's have... Yeah. I love the melting pot. I love... That's why I love cities. That's why I love, yeah. you know, kind of being able to get food from anywhere and all over the place with loads of different influences. And yet I end up cooking seasonal stuff that's just yeah. around me. So I don't see any connection. Yeah, I don't. I embrace the I embrace the fact that it's become so multicultural that we are able to be so welcoming and understanding. I hope so. You no, know, I, I hope. That's I wish what we, I remember. That's what exactly. I remember. So, yeah, no, and I, I mean, hope I, it does stay. Yeah, me too. I think most people are like that, you know. But there's just been a meanness that's crept back in with the rise yeah. of the right. Um, you know, that really start to be seen with Brexit, you know, and a lot of it's about fear. A lot of it's yeah. about people are scared of losing their culture when, you know, which you don't, you know, your culture is enhanced by being up against others, yeah. you know, because, you know, you can take things on. I, I love that. And I hope mm -hmm. that we 
get back to that kind of openness so. and kindness and all that kind of stuff, you know? I'm hoping so. It can only get better. Yeah. It can't, and we, it can and only that, get better. Yes, yeah. that's right. And but you've got to remember that we, i.e. people like us who obviously do like the cultural mashup, mm-hmm. you know, we are still, I guess, maybe 60% of the country yeah. or 70% of the country. I still think we're in the majority. You yeah. look at the kind of spirit there was at the... 2012 olympics yeah it was fast it was incredible and was that incredible. was a real celebration of what london's become because yeah. you know it was the olympic city london mm-hmm. and i was just really proud of i just thought wow this is great you know it just felt welcoming but proud of its traditions but mm-hmm. also willing to accept traditions from coming from elsewhere and that was us our best in a way but that's so. got it's a bit lost in the last 10 years i think it feels it's scary that it's been 10 years I know. It is crazy. <laughs> I can remember. I'm just I like, can remember when it was coming. 2022, up. and I'm like, oh my god, can't and I was looking forward to it. It was like 2009, <laughs> thinking, oh, you know, really looking forward to it. And it, it was, it was a great thing. And I, I think that's, I like to think of Britain as that. I saw, like, so I was looking at your cookbook. I've actually ordered it because I like mm-hmm. some of the recipes, yeah. especially because I love game. So I was like, yeah. So, and we get a lot of it over here, so I thought this is a really good opportunity to use it as well. Yes. But I saw that you use bread sauce. And in one yes. of your recipes, um, I think it was with the pheasant. Yes, I think it, it was. was pheasant. Pheasant. Yeah, um, bread sauce. What's your secret? Because when I saw the photograph, I was like, what's your secret to creating the most creamy, but it was thick, but it wasn't, it wasn't lumpy. It was like, I've not had some great bread sauce, and I yeah. love that sort of stuff. But I've yeah. had some horrid ones. Yes. Have you created some, some, something creamy yet thick and yet luscious? I hate to say it. Do you know what the answer is? Go on, butter. butter. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. It's butter. <laughs> oh it's butter. We basically, uh, the reason we have bread sauce on the menu, um, I was in a three Michelin star restaurant in France. I'm, I'm not always in them, but I was. And they came up, and it was uh, Michel Bra, who cooks mm. very kind of like Tawari kind of cooking. Anyway, they brought over this sauce to serve the waiter with one of the dishes. And he said, and this sauce is made from bread. It's bread, you know. And I, and and they were like, isn't that unusual? And I was suddenly thinking, no, for our, no, in England we use leftover bread in bread sauce, you know. Anyway, so it was lovely and fine. But it wasn't like a really good English bread sauce where I think you need to get milk and you need to extract, uh, you need onion. The, the chop up a bit of onion and put it in and then put your spices in like cloves like you know i mentioned them in the book cloves and um uh whatever other ones you're using i mean i i i, I try often with spices i often like using just one because mm-hmm. i love that recognition of what's that what's that ah it's yeah. clove um yeah. but anyway that you then cook and let the bread crumbs absorb mm-hmm. into the um, into the milk which has been flavored i we we uh cure we leave the milk to absorb those flavors oh bay leaf it's another one um we leave them to absorb those flavors for a day two days and yeah. then we cook the breadcrumbs in it and they <sighs> swell up and then when they've swollen up and it's all cooked and it's ready i'm afraid you've just got to go 
mad with the butter. It's got, I love butter, and cream, the, butter. Yeah. Well, exactly, and it's very important. Now, that came from an idea of another French three-star chef. There's a theme appearing here, isn't there? <laughs> um, of Joel Rubichon and his mashed potato. Now, if you've ever been, had Joel Rubichon, he's famous for mashed potato. He's dead now. But he made mash with new potato, a kind of new potato, mm -hmm. like um, not, you know, different two different types of potato, red, usually red or white. Red is yeah. white is floury. And that's how they break down. He made amazing mashed potato. And then he would add almost half butter, almost half the weight of the but mashed you've potato. Got it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's something that you only, you don't eat, you know, I would say once a year, not even once <laughs> a month. You know, it's so rich. But it is, I've never known anyone not taste this butter, this mash, and go, oh, my God. Um, anyway, so I was in the kitchen. I was telling, I was saying, telling everyone this story, and we made some uh, bread sauce, and I just beat in all this butter. And the trick with butter is, if you watch good chefs, uh, Italians making risotto, uh, this guy uh, making mashed potato, they always beat the butter in, and there's a good reason for that. The butter mustn't separate. It mustn't melt. Butter is an emulsion, uh, but it's an emulsion in solid form until then when you put it in something hot, you keep stirring. And that way, when you eat it, you get this creamy thing in your mouth, which if you let it split, you don't get. So I'm going to try this. Yeah. So, for example, you make a risotto. I'm try this. Yeah. So, for example, you make a risotto. And you get to the point, they I think they even call it this manticare or something. There's an Italian word for it, finishing a risotto. So you make a risotto by, you know, kind of frying the frying the onion, putting the rice in, then maybe some vermouth, and then hot stock, and you stir it and stir it. And then when that moment when there's barely any chalkiness left in the middle of a grain of rice, you stop and then you let the last bit of the cooking happen in the residual heat so in other words you put a lid on it and leave it for five minutes mm -hmm. and then the rice will be perfect it will still be firm but not raw anyway that is then the moment when you manticare which is you chop up the butter cold put it in and then you beat it and by beating it you keep the the butter goes back to kind of almost like cream rather than if you just leave it. So I've seen some chefs, they'll chop the butter in, then go and do something else, come back, and there'll be butter oil separated. And it mm. wrong. Does it work? doesn't work. Oh, I will yeah. try that. Yeah, so it. it's emulsion. It's keeping the emulsion, you know. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. So I love your process of cooking and then the vegetables that benefit from being picked just before you use it. Yeah, yeah. What was your thought behind that? What's the thought behind it? Mm -hmm. um, I suppose, um, you know, mainly the sap thing I talked about earlier. So preserving that, because that is what makes vegetables better. You see, when they first pick, as you know, vegetables have are sweet. And then slowly that sugar turns to starch. And as it turns to starch, you get this kind of starchy bitterness coming in, which isn't as nice to eat. They're still fine and you can do all sorts of things to preserve them but just like you said i used to live when i was a kid i'm next 
over the road and uh, past a few houses, there was a huge pea field mm -hmm. and they grew peas. So I spent like, you know, when I was eight, 10, 12, you know, just literally just walking past a pea field and just eating them raw like sweets. And I wouldn't even think of cooking small peas you know, I'd, I'd serve them virtually raw. And as I said to chefs, you know, you really are just warming these things through and preserve that sappiness. And that's why, because they have got, and it's the same with beans and all those kind of pea, bean, broad bean, yeah. all those kind of vegetables. Um, it's that sap. And I want I want that in my meal. I don't want to lose that. Yeah, so we're talking about peas, but you, you reminded yeah. me of... Um... When it's pea season here, I love spinach and pea. As a child, I hated it because when we make curry, they always put a lot of fenugreek seeds in. Yes. But I prefer not the whole fenugreek. I like it when it's been like great, like shredded, like crushed. Yes, yeah. I prefer that one. But they used to cook it in the oil, but it'd go dark brown, so it was so bitter. Yes, As yes. a child. I hated I yeah. hated anything with fenugreek seeds and unfortunately spinach and pea curry was one of them. Right. But as I grew up and I was like studied food and you know you know learn you know you read books and you learn techniques, etc. Yeah. I love fenugreek and I love pea and spinach curry, but I like that when I use fresh peas, the sweetness and I still keep it slightly hard. Because I like the texture with the wilted spinach yes. with the um, peas because there's a contrast of spice and sweetness. Mm. And then your food doesn't taste like baby puree because you've still got texture in it. And that's something... The, Indian, the Indians have a tendency to cook their vegetables for a long time, don't they? Yeah, and that's something I don't like. So, yeah. I've, so, so many dishes I disliked as a kid. Yeah, I cook it differently. So my aubergine is just cooked, or my peas yeah. are still a bit. They still got a bite to it. Yeah, because yeah, I like mm. the sweetness. And Almost used like you'd use a herb at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, like you chuck coriander into a. Like I love, I love coriander, lime, all the things you oh, chuck yeah. in at the end. Um, yeah. But yeah, I know what you mean. I think that sounds gorgeous. I mean, do you try it because I do yeah, sweat my well. onions and I caramelize them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then I just then I just chuck in my spinach. Yeah. And but I only make it when the spinach is in season. So what spinach cooking comes, fat do you use with that? Of, I use olive oil because yes. and I use extra veg. I know people yep. that don't cook with no, extra veg. I, no. I love it. But my secret thing is, when it's cooked, I do put in a knob of butter yes. and stir it because there's something that happens in the curry. Yes, and I really like it. It's just like I don't yes. like beat it, but it somehow mm. just melts, and it's it's like it's what you said about the coating. It's like this subtle yeah. creaminess, and mm. that's what I love. It it is. It's the way you do it. You can't yeah. beat. I mean, I'm afraid if I had to say what's the best way of cooking vegetables? I'll often say, well, you know, you cook them and then at the last moment you put that knob of butter in and yeah. you just coat it. Um, yeah, everything. I, I mean, leeks. Yeah, at the moment oh, we, got really, we got nice leeks, which is unusual. Mm -hmm. But um, at this time of year now, leeks come in all sorts. All, they used to be very much February through to April, May. 
yeah. and then they go all woody in the middle but um the seasons have they've worked that out so yeah leeks spinach oh yeah i get it a bit of butter you need it you gotta have it you know why be yeah. shy we can enjoy something so but that's well. what's interesting because um obviously they use ghee in indian cooking which yeah. is clarified mm. and so you've lost the kind of um milk uh solids that you get so mm. those have been separated off and i think that's a bit of a shame in a way because i understand why they do it because they mm. cook uh they don't want those burning when they cook so mm. i understand why you have uh clarified butter and ghee in cooking but it's not necessary at the end at the end you want those milk solids because yeah. those are those are coats. part of that lovely cream and that's what i mean about the emulsion of butter try and keep that if you're using it um, I'll, I'll, i will try it because as a kid growing up i used to love having plain rice with ghee yeah i love it because yeah. it's like you need the fat as a child because you're burning off so much energy like yeah it was just no incredible. but uh, my son's favorite my son's nine and he's beginning to be able to work out what he likes and express it and everything and his favorite pasta is just plain pasta with butter and parmesan and lemon oh, and i'm oh, like so good funny. on you yeah that's exactly so and it's like you don't have to have a sauce and you don't have to have everything with it um and you know that's you know so there's uh uh that there's an equivalent you know why not yeah. butter with oh butter with rice that would be gorgeous try it try it yeah, oh, yeah. It's really and so like maybe to my next questions we're talking about food and enjoying it but your oysters and fish come from the north sea yes and that sea is quite choppy so you do yeah. have sea that's oxygenated therefore yeah. it provides sweeter seafood what's your favorite yeah. produce and how would you enjoy it my favorite produce yeah so um what seafood particularly See, i'd say seafood because yeah have... well i i love fish i mean I, you know if i go out i often like people have pointed it out to me it's like you realize you've, you've ordered starter main course both fish <laughs> and i will often do that because i love it um you know a bit of and i'm very conscious of uh the best way of cooking each different fish mm -hmm. um i love turbot which is one of our great local fish um i love brill i love sole slip soles i do a in slip sole in seaweed butter but i think i i kind of described it a, a piece of local bath steamed with vegetables yeah. picked that morning with a light butter sauce and i'm in heaven um I can't think of anything better than that. So you've got vegetables, peas, broad beans, beans, all, you know, the beans chopped up to be the size of the peas and the broad beans, gently warmed through in a, and I mean just warmed through, in a light butter sauce. So mm -hmm. I would make a, um, I would sweat a shallot, add some wine, reduce it right down till it's gone. Mm -hmm then I'd put a little splash of cream and butter and stir it and then strain that and then just put the vegetables in, put them on the plate and the piece of steamed sea bass on top. And I, I couldn't, I don't, I think that's my perfect that's, meal. That's poetry in motion. Yeah. Really. Yeah, definitely. I, I love it. And when, during the lockdown, I, I could, I still luckily could get hold of good fish and uh, I ate that a lot. 
I, oh, uh, so I mean, I would like a nice big bowl of chips with it as well, mm. you know. <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean. You need a bit of like decadence and naughtiness on the side. I, I do. And that's usually where I, where chocolate and cream come in at the end of the meal. Oh, you don't know. worry. Don't worry. Because, you know, I was in Devon a couple of weeks back. Well, actually, July, not a couple of yeah. weeks. But um, I had clotted cream and scones twice a day. Yeah have to Why? I, I couldn't Why? help myself I was, oh, yeah. was so good and you need and that I, I ate it so fast it's like do you put the cream <laughs> or the jam on I can't remember I, like, I just I don't really care which, you know, it's, it's so good it's so good it's the most perfect thing isn't it and I love with I, what I love with um cream teas with scones is like soda bread I use soda bread a lot mm. which is uh bread risen by the uh the gas released from bicarbonate of soda meeting cream of tartar so acid mm -hmm. and alkaline meat and they produce gas and that's what rises soda mm -hmm. bread but what it gives is what that little fizziness mm -hmm. that you get when you have scones so scones when you put the clotted cream on and the jam you know the scone has got this slight i mean jam and clotted cream obviously fruit <laughs> is one thing they're like two things from far apart coming together in the mouth which is like a clash yeah. and i always say it's like an interface yeah. where jam like some people will say oh why don't you mix the jam into the cream no let that happen in your mouth that's <laughs> the good bit when you bite into it and you get the cream and the jam are separate and then together they combine in your mouth and that's why i often say to people when they're cooking if you can pull some of the constituent parts apart and let them happen in the mouth that can be the trick to turning a, a good dish into a great dish yeah. and that kind of um so what i love about a cream a bun you know a cream tea is is the jam and the really thick cream oh god but, i'm so hungry this the is salty, delicious the salty fizziness of the scone is very important for me that's what i think makes it great otherwise it would just be on bread wouldn't it because i like the texture of it like it's like yes, it's yeah. two unlikely food groups coming together yeah but they work well so yeah. it's it's like I love warm toast. Yeah. Butter and marmite. Yeah. yeah. And I, I like the unlikely oh. marriage. Oh no, food. I'm with you on that. Butter. Oh good. Because everyone's like, oh that's disgusting. Oh, I no. love marmite and I love butter. So yes. yeah. Marmite butter is a thing. Did you know that? In no, Russia? no, no. If no. you go in my um my contribution to gastronomy, by the way was that my restaurant was the first restaurant in the world to make its own butter. Okay. Right. I was the first person to do it. Now, chefs didn't make butter. They didn't make their own butter back yes. in 2004 or three when I first did it. And I always say it because I always think, I wonder, I'd love it if somebody <laughs> said, I was making my own butter in 1998. You might have been, but were you serving it in a restaurant? Mm -hmm. Anyway, we started doing that. It's become a fashion okay. all around the world because lots of chefs came here during a certain period and they had their home at our butter at the beginning of the meal it blew them away and they went away and made it anyway so i totally the reason i did it was for reasons of terroir in other words i went to a farm uh and i i sourced my butter from a farm 
one farmer a field of cows and they're all the same breed and it's thick kent grass that gives off dew in the morning you know um anyway and i used to get unpasteurized cream from these jersey cows it was thick and yellow and it was like clotted cream but it was yellow and i had a tub of it going out of date and so um my mum when i was a kid used to get me to whip the cream for the apple crumble so and she'd always say don't whip it too far or you'll get butter anyway i had this tub of cream that i loved and I had one left over. It was just one normal Sunday night going through the fridges. And I thought, I've got to use this because it's out of date, um, mm -hmm. this tub of the most amazing unpasteurized Jersey cream. So I put it in a machine, beat the crap out of there, and ended up with the best butter I've ever tasted. Uh, the, wow. the cream separated into buttermilk and butter. Anyway, then I make my own salt from the sea. And um i've been doing that already i put the two together so i have my own salted butter now that became a real fashion in restaurants and it mm. is now you know you'll even now they'll say oh uh, this is our homemade butter you know but then somebody which is fine you know I, i'm 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 happy to have uh you know i can put my flag in the sand and say we did that in 2004 and um We've been doing making our own butter for 20 years. But I loved it when somebody, I was in a restaurant, and they mixed their butter with Marmite, stirred it together. And so you got this lovely kind of yeasty, buttery butter, you know, that yeah. was Marmite-flavoured. And uh, that's, you you know, that's a thing now in restaurants, a Marmite yeah. butter. Yeah. So I want to have a look out for it because I do... I do love that, you know. Yeah, I don't know who did it first. I first had it, a, a guy at uh, the typing room, I think it was, in London, um, okay. restaurant in London. But I've seen it around other places as well. So I, I don't know where that began, but Marmite butter is a thing. Mm, I'll try it. Yeah. So this is a bit of a controversial question. Mm. So I hope you're ready for it. Um so a world of cultural and culinary diversity is being served up in British, like in British food, in restaurants. Yeah, yeah. Do you think retailers <laughs> have a desire to establish global supply chains that counteract the seasonality of production for restaurants? Yeah, that's quite nice. That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, I do think supermarkets just want to make money mm. and they're not interested in how they do it. Um, they've missed a trick in England because they should sell vegetables from local farms in England mm. like they do in Italy. You'll have a little you'll have a little market almost in the car park mm. and, and there'll be somebody with boxes of stuff. They should have done that. That would have been. Yeah. But instead, they, like you say, what is the sense? I mean, I still see it. I walk around a supermarket when asparagus season, and it's literally going everywhere in Kent. Every lay-by mm. has a sign saying asparagus, five pound a bunch. And then I go into the supermarket, and it's from Peru, you know. Yeah. And it's like, what's that about? Why do you need to get your asparagus? And I'm guessing that it, it is all about 
global supply chains mm -hmm. but i think it's like they i think there's laziness not laziness mm -hmm. right word but you know we get our asparagus from there you know um mm -hmm. and it's hard dealing you see when you're a restaurant people would not believe i recently had a customer who won a competition to spend the day with me you know go, <laughs> you know who do want to do that but he did one and um, he couldn't believe how much work went into getting all the ingredients for the day because i was having to go further afield um so i went to the local uh farmer's market and i bought you know beans our beans have run out in the garden so i was buying beans from a farmer over there and and then i bought i can't remember what else i bought anyway i was buying and then i called in at another farmer's market in another town and picked up half a dozen uh young celeriac for a specific dish that's what i spend a lot of my day doing is going around picking this stuff up and then if somebody's growing there's a little stall at the end of the road of woman who grows a load of stuff and sells it so mm -hmm. i would go around picking up stuff yeah um and people find that quite strange that's mm -hmm. hard so imagine doing that on for a supermarket on a global scale what supermarkets want they want to make as much money as possible and so they cut their mar they want their margins mm -hmm. you know their margins you know they want it to be cheap because they want to sell a lot of it but they want to make a lot of money so they've got all these different things going on so a global supply chain means they can keep things cheap but what they do want is everybody wants everything to be in like freight boxes now yeah. you know so it's easy uh yeah. like for example canterbury used to have a lovely old high street with wiggledy piggledy buildings and things like that all medieval old buildings it was beautiful well what did they do they built a new high street virtually which has uh lorries can come in and unload round the back in other words they ruined the old high street in canterbury mm -hmm. for one that looks like it could be anywhere you know in the in the country and it's all for ease everything's about mm -hmm being easy and about transport so these they supermarkets don't care about how things taste where they come from really you know mm. mainly they compare they they want to make money so they want to do that and they want everything to be as easy and cheap as it can be that's why they they hit the dairy markets you know so dairy farmers you know i i know a dairy farmer who i use and I said to him, why don't you sod the supermarkets, start um, creating a premium product. So do, you know, market it like it's, yeah. this all comes from one field, um, one breed account, you know, what I was saying yeah. about the butter. And make your own butter and, and sell gold top milk with all the yeah. fat and, and uh, sell raw jersey, raw cream or whatever, you know, all the mm. things people will pay extra for but, it, but because the mark the, the supermarkets dominate the dairy market in britain and they've nailed them all down to make it so that milk costs 26p a pint or whatever because that's the price they have to get so i think with supermarkets and you know a restaurateur has got completely different or a chef has got completely different um objectives to a supermarket so Definitely. i just you know i mean 
you know i also i must admit i'm not a supermarket hater like other people are there's a lot of people in the world of food who hate supermarkets but i can remember when the 50 old out of town supermarket arrived in the mid 80s and i just got back from working in france driving around and i used to i cooked out there just for a gang of people going around we were going around um mending campsites but that's a long story but the point was i had these amazing supermarkets in france and i, I loved them because suddenly i could get olive oil you yeah. know i am from the generation that had to buy olive oil from the chemist and people don't believe it if you wanted if you wanted olive oil and some people even say it's a myth it's like no I can tell you, I used to go to Cheadles in Whitstable and buy little bottles of olive oil, which were for putting in your ear to soften earwax. I remember that. My mum used to do it to me. Yeah. <laughs> and you couldn't that. get, you didn't have like an aisle with, yeah. you know, you couldn't get balsamic vinegar or anything like that. Even I had to go to the health food shop to get more than salt. You know, and yeah, but this was normal, you know, and I, I that's, I'm lucky <laughs> in some way because I'm a bit older. I can remember stuff that other people can't. Yeah. Cooking, you see, I was into food and I'd buy cookbooks and they'd say, get Malden salt, get olive oil, all that kind of stuff. So I had to go out and find them. And that's, and then when the big supermarkets, the hypermarkets arrived, mm -hmm. suddenly you could get everything. So, yeah, like yeast, you know, yeast and things like that, you know, dry, dry active yeast. You know, I would have to go down the baker's and ask, have you got any spare yeast? You I know. can't do that because people here, it's really curious, there's quite a few bakers, like bakeries around where I live. Yeah. And they'll say in Spanish, uh, neat, uh, granddaughters of Anna. So the grandma must have set up the shop, made the bread, and people go there and buy fresh yeast yeah. i do the same because it's so different to fast yeah. dry acting yeast yes yeah 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 better it's yeah and people still do that because i i feel like i've gone a bit backwards in terms of shopping so like i think because in spain you yeah. have a lot of supermarkets sell their own produce like it's yeah. from spain it's this yeah. but then you've got you know the one major supermarket that's more international yeah. But when it comes to fruit and veg, my shopping takes me ages because I'll get the yeast from here, the fish from here, the meat yeah, from there. Yeah. And it takes me longer to do food shopping than anything else. Different shops have different yeah. uh, good stuff. It's and true. You're, you're getting the good stuff from all of them. No, you, well, you're a cook. I, <laughs> I, I spent my life doing it before, even before I came a chef. Yeah, became it's a just chef. one of those things. It's like, because I think growing up, um, I think, cause, you know, it's us raised in Leicestershire, so you'd always see the green grocers from like the ethnic ones from my grandma. Be like, oh, the spinach is better here, and the yeah. meat's better there. Yeah, and you're gonna yeah. do this, and I'm like, yeah. Ugh. so as a child, yeah. I was like, oh god, this is not how yeah. I want to spend my summer holidays. Yeah, but looking back now, I, I appreciate it. it makes a difference, and I appreciate what she was trying to teach me. You know, and and I think I think it's a nice memory to have, and hopefully. Mm. It's become an occupational hazard for me. Like now I'm like, I want to do this and I want to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, your restaurant it incorporates sustainable living and it's done it because you started it because you were seeing what was on the land. And yeah. And it's become, you know, I don't want to say it, but it's become that buzzword of sustainable living. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. you know, and it's organic agri um, agriculture. 
and mm. how are you how to make the best lifestyle choices that benefit you in the environment and it's kind of coming to that sort of movement what made you become a dedicated chef in that area because you've done it in a way because you know you you did cooking in france mm. and everything was on the land yes what made you become dedicated as a chef in that area in the uk uh oh lots of reasons i mean i uh i can't think i couldn't cook any other way mm -hmm. i was a big fan of the kind of californian um early 70s alice uh, walters alice walters from uh shapenese um mm -hmm. that kind of super seasonal super fresh that's that was my early influence um then when i became a chef I suddenly realized I I taught myself to cook, but I worked in a couple of restaurants to find out how they mm. operate. So I had friends who had restaurants. So I worked in their kitchens for a bit because I didn't know how to run a restaurant. You know, I wanted to open one. I could cook a bit, mm -hmm. but I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know you cook the main course while they're eating their starter. You know, mm. I didn't know all that. So I had to learn all that. But what I noticed was, um, all the restaurants in the local area all used the same vegetable supplier mm. there were two and everybody used the same one so all the vegetables in the local restaurants were all from the same supplier so everyone was cooking with the same ingredients and i always thought well hang on if i want my food to stand out and be better or different certainly hopefully better, i've got to get different ingredients and that was the beginning of it really was okay. going to farms and buying you know now i'll go to a farm and say right how many red cabbages are you going to grow in the next month right i'll have all of them or something you know mm -hmm. um you know small scale stuff but so really it was about uh one of my less appealing attributes which is my competitiveness <laughs> i feel a bit slightly embarrassed about it because i am very competitive i i wanted I wanted my restaurant to be better than anyone else's and I would find every possible way of making it better. And one of them was realizing that if I just use the same vegetables as everybody else, my food's just going to taste the same. So I went to a nearby farm, which was only a mile away and said, can you pick the vegetables for me in the morning? And I'll mm. come them up just before lunch mm. i drive around after i got all my prep done i was on my own then and mm. um uh dan my head chef joined me after six months mm. he's here he's still with me so that's 23 years ago wow. and 22 years and um i would go and pick up the vegetables that had been picked and that was and we served so in 1999 when we opened at the end of the year mm. millennium time uh when you came here you'd have you know meat from the local farm and then you'd have um cabbage that had just been picked that morning cooked really quickly and then dressed with butter lemon and black pepper and then potatoes roasted in goose fat now and that to me i wanted a kind of a country style of cooking and that to me was like country cooking duck fat roast potatoes cabbage just cooked with butter and lemon and black pepper um, and then a nice piece of meat or fish or whatever 
and that was that was what i started doing and the reason i did it was to try and was one because that was the food i loved you wouldn't believe the reaction mm. of, of people to the potatoes and the cabbages and a simple cook they were like my dad had said oh, no, no, i i've never eaten i didn't really like cabbage i just and it, it was a revelation to him he was 55 or something when he you know wow. when i um and so all these customers you know were like wow this is amazing they hadn't had potatoes roasted in duck fat or goose fat or whatever before um so it was quite revolutionary so i was trying to do things whereas everybody else in the local area would serve a little bowl of microwaved vegetables which would be beans from kenya um broccoli <laughs> from egypt or whatever you know that no but that's what every restaurant did so you get your food you know your fish with a sauce or something and then you get a little thing of vegetables next to it, it all year round wow. you know what you've got to remember is when i first opened gordon ramsay and marcus waring who now you know you'd think they were mm. born a farm well certainly marcus waring he does his program where he walks around in his wellies and his um you know his kind of uh you know gentleman of the soil look he was serving asparagus broad beans and peas in january and i know because i ate at his restaurant over mm. wow what he, what even mm. is um seasonality <laughs> my customers want to eat lobster mm. asparagus and everything and they want it all year round that was the attitude back then wow. and you mustn't forget that because now it's a bit like you know now everyone's hip you mm. know everyone's hip about it's become a movement, though. it has become a movement and um, but a lot of people weren't doing it and they I'm, yeah. I'm happy for them to pretend they're all um you know kind of farmyardy now but they weren't no you know. because it wasn't a thing because it was it was classed as the poor man's food yeah you had this thing about it but yeah you know so you, doing my research i like to kind of dig a bit deeper and go are they actually doing sustainability what have they actually done are they mm. practicing it or is it just like a facade you know and yeah. and people who are genuinely doing it you know like yourselves You've been doing it like for ages, like mm. over two decades. Yeah. It's a very long time. Yeah. And you'd be one of the pioneers that people will look up to and go, you know what, he's been doing it for ages. He makes his own butter, he does this. And I think I think it's a beautiful way of being a passionate chef, a dedicated, but your your life, your food is your passion. Yeah. And you see that. And you know, for some people you'll see being a chef is an occupation it's a lifestyle yeah, yeah. but for some people it's pure passion and that comes mm. through your methodologies and your cooking and your book it, it's it's, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a common thread it's a common theme that kind of flows when you read you know Great. you read well, your writing and see your food that's really nice i mean it's lovely um but as i say i feel a little bit embarrassed because it wasn't necessarily sustainability i mean of course i you know i was always very aware of climate change and and the need for i mean actually one of the things that used to annoy me was those great big food lorries on motorways you know i wanted to see i wanted to see an end to them as much as anything uh but yeah it's it's changed a lot um 
and um we've got there i think in a way we've got there um but it is just fine going you know the top of the dining yeah. chain you know we have to remember most stuff is you know is not what we do um and you know i can't we can't do anything about that that has to be done on a government a government level and on a global level and you know as we can't even agree on you know anything at the moment yeah. around the world that looks as far away as possible or we've got idiot mm -hmm. government who don't even think climate change is a thing so no, they, that, yeah but these people are in power i, I mean she just left i mean if you know i know yeah. that might be a bit um uh, topical but uh, there are people now in the cabinet, the majority of the cabinet, don't believe that climate change is a thing. If you don't believe it's a thing, how are you going to fix it? Well, they're not. It's true. It's an art. They'll that get kicked the out because most people do. You know, like mm -hmm. fracking is, you know, a big issue today. And, uh, you know, people, luckily, I think most people realise, you know, we shouldn't be burning oil and coal and, all that stuff but yeah. no i know i mean that's kind of <laughs> obvious to most people but to many there isn't because money's involved exactly they a lot of them have a lot of interest i mean you know one of the i think is he the energy minister that strange bloke who looks like he's from the something out of a dickens but uh reese mogg <laughs> jacob reese mogg he's this bloke who's i think he's he even got power stations or oil or oh something anyway yeah so but yeah well good i'm glad i'm glad that it's become you know much more common and supportive yeah. and everything but i have to admit that my motives were flavor and food and taste but it's what the senses and it, and it just yeah. happens that 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 yeah i mean it's almost like the world's a delicate balanced ecosystem that yeah. we should be careful of isn't it Definitely. who knew yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, I, I like that you still continued it because I think that's what makes your food special for your yeah. customers. Yeah, yeah. You know? No, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And people appreciate it. So definitely. Yeah. And my last question to you mm -hmm. is what's next for you? And are there any tasty surprises on the menu at the sportsman? Um, what's next for me? And are there any taste surprises? Um, I it's weird because I do, um, I am the executive chef of two restaurant wine bars in London called Noble Rocks, and they are just the best wine bars. You know, they win, a, we, they win award, we, I should say, but they win awards for their wine lists all the time. Very into going to France, finding a little village, finding out who the best winemaker is in that village, buying his wine and selling it in London. It's really, really great. So I help them. Uh, I own a little bit of it as well, um, so I do do that. But I'm I've no plans. I I still, you know, that perfect dish of the sea bass and the vegetable. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to serve that or similar things every single day to mm -hmm. every single customer, and I I'm still a long way from that. And it's all about it's all about logistics and supply yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So you know. The cooking i can teach people and i mean you know i do um i'm getting on now i'm 61 and mm. I, I i i have to kind of uh manage i can't do double you know 14 hour days mm. and all that 
stuff. So I'm trying to create perfect dishes day in, day out for every single customer all the time. And I'm not there yet. I get there. Most, and by the way, most of the food is still, you know, it stands out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we really proud. We were voted the fifth most exciting restaurant by the good food guide this week wow. and after 23 years to still be considered yeah. exciting 23 years we're the oldest restaurant on the list most of them are young new chefs yeah. which i love it's really dynamic and they've all got new ideas and they see the world in a different way and i absolutely love that mm -hmm. um and um but i'm still working on the logistics mm -hmm. the techniques of everything which can be um constantly improved um and that's what i spend my time doing so it's not about building an empire i'm not interested mm -hmm. in that um i want i'm literally focused on what goes on the plate and put in front of every customer mm -hmm. and um yeah i'm still that's still my thing um so flavor surprises I still want to. I still want to surprise people with how fresh and clean and bright food can be. There's a there's a fashion at the moment, um, which I love, but I call it dude food. It's cooked by men who, you know, they're barbecuing and they're wearing leather aprons and they got long beards and they're. It's like they're Vikings. They're they're so macho and manly. It's almost like, and their food is like oh there's mayonnaise let's put miso in it yeah. you know they're 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 bashing you know it's like being beaten over the head with flavor yeah. and it reminds that music is a big thing for me and it reminds me of the difference between the music i love and the music that you know that type loves they love kind of heavy metal and yeah. guitarists who shred at 100 miles an hour i love blues guitarists who leave gaps mm. and spaces and they weave things in and out. And they're not just about beating you over the head with noise. It's the same with, with that. Now, obviously there are people who are great at that. I love Jimi Hendrix. He was, you could say he was like that. He was a genius and I love, so, but what I'm looking for is more like Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. Listen to the song, Honky Tonk Women. Listen to how he plays the guitar. It's the gaps are just as important as the notes you play, the space you leave, the space for things to breathe. And now I see this equivalent in, in food. So mm. when it comes to taste, I want to bring out the natural taste of everything mm. as much as I possibly can. But I want to serve it in a way where there's still a bit of space and light and that you know so that's my aim it's a very kind of uh, obscure aim but i'm but it's, that, a, it's a wonderful comparison yeah well it you works know? for me because yeah. it's music is my other thing you know big yeah um you know i've always played played guitar since i was a kid and i was in bands and did you know kind of all sorts of stuff and so i find the analogy between music and food really works for me um, and sometimes, well, sometimes I kind of need to think why, why should, why did one way work and another way not? So, you know, I see heavy metal as banging someone, a bloke with a long beard in a leather apron, banging something over my head and putting miso in everything or putting sinatra in everything. In other words, there's no room, you know, what's wrong with a lovely mayonnaise? I like the taste of eggs. 
with the oil. I, I yeah. love it. And it's like, it's subtle. So that's what I'm, that's where I'm at at the moment, you know? That's fantastic. Well, Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you. Pleasure the conversation has been so wholesome. And <laughs> you can eat it. I'm trying to think yeah. of a word when you're talking. It's really organic and wholesome. Mm. And Good. I just want to say thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me.